I have one thing to say to you. Kiss my fat ass. Hello, my fellow mourners of diet culture. It is I, Emily Lubin. I'm the Grim Reaper and the host of this show. Welcome back to RIP Diets. We are well on our way into season three, baby. Ugh, I'm still so excited to be back. It feels so damn good. I had some stuff that I wanted to talk about today, but I ended up getting this DM last week shortly after I released the first episode of season one, and To anybody who didn't hear that episode, I interviewed Daphne Fisher and we talked about exercise addiction, among other things, and it was one of my favorite conversations that I've had so far. But in the intro, I was talking about a body change that I've had in the past six months or so and some unintentional weight loss that was brought to my attention by other people. And I was basically just talking about feeling very self-conscious when people would bring up my weight loss, um, especially bringing it up in a positive way as far as, you know, how did you lose weight? Uh, How did you get skinny? Those types of comments that make me very uncomfortable, especially because I didn't even know that I had lost weight and don't weigh myself, don't pay attention to my weight. So any weight that I had lost was unintentional and very much by accident, I guess you could say. Um, So in my intro, I was talking about, you know, feeling self-conscious when people would bring up my weight loss because in the past, all I wanted to do was lose weight. And hearing that positive reinforcement would have just made me want to go on a diet and kind of double down and lose more weight because I'm getting that positive reinforcement. But now having to fight back against that eating disorder voice proves to be challenging at times. Um, And that's basically what I was talking about. I ended up getting this DM that I'm going to keep anonymous. And also I'm going to respond to this very respectfully because I do think this listener brings up an interesting point. And I just wanted to talk about it. So here we go. I listened to the last podcast and specifically the beginning where you talk about people making comments about your decreasing body weight. For some background, I suffered from eating disorders for 10 plus years and I'm in active recovery for the last five. I think what has struck me the most is not the shrinking body, but how you continue to talk about your body and weight. You often refer to yourself as, quote, bigger or not thin. I can't recall exact phraseology, although you do say you're straight sized. Objectively, you are very thin. I think you speaking about yourself as being bigger or not thin while being very thin may raise concerns about dysmorphia or other disordered thoughts. In addition, telling your audience that you are not thin may have a negative impact on their own self-image. This has been something that I've been thinking about for months now, and I've been wary of writing this to you, but I think your last episode was a tipping point for me as I don't believe you addressed a main issue that I've seen. I hope this does not come off as too critical and please ignore if you don't think it's relevant. 
it's just something I've been thinking about for several months now. So first of all, thank you for the feedback. I appreciate your opinion and I always want to be extra conscious of how I talk about my body and how I talk about these sensitive topics because I do know that there are a lot of people listening to this show who really struggle with disordered eating. They might be at different points in their recovery and might be triggered easily by different things. At the same time, though, this is also a personal show. I talk about my own life. I talk about my own recovery and my own emotions. And I am very frank with you guys that some things in this show might be triggering to some listeners. It's important for me to have full transparency with you guys and be able to share the emotions that I'm having throughout my recovery. So I will say that, although I do hear what you're what you're saying, and I listened to the beginning of the episode you mentioned, and I still stand by everything I said, but I do just want to take a moment and shed some light on it because I think you do bring up a good point. Just to be extra clear to new listeners and to anyone who may feel this way, I am very well aware that I live in a thin body. I do think that when I talk honestly about my body or having bad body image days, it's easy to interpret that as me not thinking I'm thin or just that I feel bad about my body. But this really could not be further from the truth. First of all, in general, I love my body. I appreciate my body. But most importantly, I'm a huge advocate for body neutrality, which means that my body isn't good or bad no matter what size it is. And it took me years and years to get to this place. And I'm very happy with this place that I'm at, which is why I tell you guys all the time, I don't weigh myself. I don't keep track of my weight. I measure my health based on how I feel and not by what my body looks like. But at the same time, of course, I know that I am a thin person. I feel like I've made it clear on this podcast that I know I'm a thin person. There was an episode last season when I talked about plus size fashion and plus size sustainable fashion. And in that episode, I made it clear that I am not plus size. I don't shop at these stores. But I thought it was important to provide those resources to people who need them. Above all else, I want this podcast to be very inclusive and accessible to different people because no matter what your body size is, the message is the same. And I think it's important for us to all talk about these issues because they do affect all of us and they affect us, especially us women, regardless of our body size. But I can also acknowledge that I definitely do have a distorted body image. It's taken years for me to get to this place, but of course, I still have room for improvement in that area. And of course, I have body dysmorphia. It would be insane if I didn't considering my history. And I still have to battle that eating disorder voice. I don't think that voice goes away. I think that throughout recovery, you just get better at recognizing that voice and knowing how to combat against it. Also, just to review for anyone who doesn't know, I was in a larger body for two-thirds of my life. I only became a, quote, 
thin person around age 20 or 21. And by that point, my body image was so far beyond repair. I'd been bullied and mistreated and discriminated against for my weight for my entire adolescence. And losing weight and therefore becoming a thin person didn't take away my mental illness. And in some ways it made it worse because it made me very self-conscious of my new body and how I was expected to now navigate the world in this new body. And then even after I hit my initial weight loss goal, I soon learned that I was still not enough. It didn't make me feel more secure in myself. And still at times, I don't think I'm enough. I still struggle in that area. But of course, I can also admit that I have thin privilege and in my current body, I'm able to navigate the world much more easily than a fat person can. And that sucks. And I don't stand for it at all. I hope that both things can be true. I hope that I can be mindful of the thin privilege that I do have but still be open and honest about my own insecurities and how my eating disorder still plays into my life even years into recovery. Also, just the fact that I still feel this way sometimes, even years into recovery, shows that changing your body will not solve all your problems. And we're still entitled to feel our feelings regardless of how we are viewed in society and regardless of our body size. So I I just wanted to kind of break that down and explain where I was coming from. And I hope that you guys can give me a little bit of grace and understanding and just respect that this is a space where I can talk openly and honestly about body image. And that includes my own body image, even though I can definitely admit I am viewed in society a certain way and I have that privilege. I still battle my own eating disorder brain, my own thoughts, not every single day, but you know, I definitely have those days and I want to be able to talk about it so that anybody else who's experiencing that can know how normal it is and can know how to combat it. And on a very different note, I want to get into today's conversation with Dr. Brooke Smith. I'm really glad I was introduced to this woman and I got to sit down and learn from her because she spoke directly to my soul. Dr. Brooke is a productivity coach and also a true believer in the intuitive eating process and a recovery warrior herself. She spoke to something that I've discussed before, which is using your eating disorder or using dieting to feel accomplished in something, because it seems that nowadays everyone feels like they're never doing enough and they can never keep up with their to-do lists that are seven pages long every day. And in those moments of desperation, you might turn to something to feel more in control. For me, in the past, that has been food, and Dr. Brooke shares a similar experience with me. I learned a lot from this one, and I think you will too. So without further ado, let's listen to today's conversation with Dr. Brooke Smith. You 
guys, my guest today is one that I'm so excited for. She's an intuitive productivity coach and mindfulness expert, Dr. Brooke Smith. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Of course. We were, you know, chatting the chat a little bit before I hit record and um, we were talking about, you know, productivity being something that a lot of people with disordered eating struggle with. And I've talked about this on the show at length is that like one of the things that I beat myself up about and constantly label, label myself as is lazy. I call myself a lazy person. And it wasn't until the past couple years that I realized that my eating disorder was a way for me to channel those feelings like, oh, if I can't get this work done, or if I am prone to distraction, this is something that I can turn to for control. Is that your experience as well? 100%. And I didn't even realize it when I was in it. Um, when I was in it, I was so committed to being like over the top effective and successful in every area of my life. And then when I started to really recover and I discovered intuitive eating, I realized that I suddenly had so much time on my hands. I finished my MBA. I started a new job. I ran my fastest marathon. I renovated a property. I crushed my first year's sales quota and I, it all just felt so easy and effortless wow. because the dozens of hours every week that I had been putting into counting calories and analyzing my workouts were suddenly available to do other things. That's really incredible. I mean, for everybody listening, that should be reason enough for you to drop the diet, but obviously it's more complicated than that. So I would love to hear what is your history with body image? Um, what was your body image like growing up? What, how did you deal with food growing up and how did your family treat it? I would love to know like your whole history. Yeah. As a, as a kid growing up, I was always aware of being round. Um, my, my family is half Middle Eastern, so I was built differently than all of the other skinny girls in my suburban school. Are you and half Middle Eastern, half white? Yes. Gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> um, I did not appreciate that when I was 10 and started developing breasts. Oh my goodness. You know, I actually, I've never even heard that about Middle Eastern women or do Middle Eastern women have, like, is that a stereotype that they're more curvy? I think so. And it was definitely true of my family. Okay. So your mom is a curvy is it, woman? My dad's family. Oh, your dad's um, so, yep, Yeah. My mom is sort of, you know, Western European white, mostly like slim. And my dad's family was, you know, the women are all Middle Eastern breasts, butts. And, you know, as a eight, nine year old in dance class, I would see the pictures every year. And it was just obvious that one of these things was not like the other. Yeah. How serious were you in dance? Um, not very. Um, I happily quit when I was 10. Do you think that played into it at all? Or were you just not passionate about dance? Um, I think I just wasn't passionate about dance. And I could also tell from the way that I was, from the way that like when we turned 10 and we were kind of like going into middle school, they started like filtering us into different classes. And I could tell by the hat sorting 
that I was not going into the classes with the talented dancers. I was going into the classes with the like other dancers. I see. So you were in the remedial class. <laughs> exactly. I was in the school. The, like the kids who didn't have potential. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> that must have been so hard to deal was, with at the time. It's funny. My my mom, I think, still believes that I had imagined it. Um, she was like, no, I'm sure like they had, you know, they had a really good reason. They just put you in this class because you were better at tap. And I was like, no, this was totally <laughs> the class for the girls who didn't have potential. It's cool. I've made peace with it. And do you have any memories of, because I've heard horror stories about people who were involved in dance as children. Do you have any memories of, you know, either girls comparing their bodies to each other openly, or maybe the teachers treating you differently? Like, do you have any recollection of that? I really don't. And I think it's just because I went to a pretty like laid back dance program. Like I only went to class once a week. We, it wasn't mm. serious yet at that age where I was. Got it. And then, so what was your relationship with food like at that point? My relationship with food was really complicated because my parents argued about food a lot. Um, Do you think my, that was a cultural thing? Um, it was a kind of a cultural and life choices thing. My mom was very interested in holistic health. Mm. Um, so she viewed food as medicine. Um, and as even in, you know, in intuitive eating, we talk a lot about the moralization of food. Yes. Um, so I think I picked up a lot of that from my mom and my dad was a like nighttime secret, eat everything in the fridge person. Oh, did he, do you think he had negative feelings about his weight? Yes. Yeah. The, yes. I mean, the whole secret eating thing, my, my mother was like that. We actually, it used to be kind of a joke. Like we would find food under her bed, like <laughs> entire pints of ice cream, family size containers of Oreos, like you name it. And we would find it under her bed. And it was always kind of a joke. Like, oh, mom hides her food stash under the bed. But looking back, it's like very, it's almost sinister to look back on it the way that we would make fun of her because I realize now she must have been putting at least some pressure on herself to eat very strictly during the day if she was eating like that at night and hiding it from us too. Exactly. And I, I think what I learned from that was, you know, that some food like super high value foods were to be eaten in secret. Yes. And were were only to be and when no one else was around. Got it. And then how did that play out like as you became a, a teenager? As I became a teenager, I became more and more aware of my body. And I had this really complicated relationship with my body where on one hand, I really resisted being overly sexualized because I had large breasts at a pretty young age. And of course, boys noticed and I did not like that. It was super uncomfortable. Yeah. But at the same time, I really wanted to be conventionally attractive. Right. So, so losing a huge amount of weight became like the obvious solution to all of my 14 year old girl problems. And um, do you think that's related to like a fear of developing and a fear of like becoming a woman in a way? I think what it was was, you know, I would see and of course this is high school. So the way that we like look at other people's relationships in high school and imagine that they have the most perfect high school lives, 
I imagined that if I was thin enough, I would be like loved and adored. And that if I was curvy, then I would be sexualized and always in danger. So if I, like, if I was thin, I would be safe, protected, like adored. Yeah. And that if I was curvy, I was just always walking around waiting for something bad to happen. Oh my gosh. You know, I've never heard it put that way, but it makes so much sense to, to hear that dichotomy that makes so much sense because I think for a lot of people, um, the idea that somebody in a larger body or just somebody who is curvier, not even necessarily in a larger body, why, how could they feel unattractive? Because men find that attractive. It's like, that's the reason why we feel unsafe. Yeah. And it's, it's thing, it's this double-edged sword of, of men finding it attractive. I remember when I was in college, a friend of mine who later came out as gay, amusingly, oh. said, men want to play with big boobs and marry small boobs. Oh, that's not nice. No. <laughs> and, but I think that, that sentiment, I think I had kind of picked up on it implicitly, you know, years before when I was just 12 or 13 years old and seeing the kind of attention I was getting. Right. So did you end up losing weight to compensate for that? Sort of. So I, I did lose weight. I started yo-yo dieting probably when I was 13 or 14. In retrospect, I had bulimia starting when I was 15, although it wasn't diagnosed until I was in my early twenties. Okay. When you say bulimia, do you mean, were you purging or were you just restricting and binging? Both. Both. Okay. And did you know what that was at the time? Like, did you have any education about that? I totally knew what it was. I was also very much in denial about it. The way that I was, if someone had described to me what I was doing and said, is this an eating disorder? I would have been absolutely. Mm -hmm. However, I ended up going to student health services when I was in grad school because I had insomnia and I kept having dreams about food and waking up right before I got to eat it. Oh my gosh. And so I thought that I was going like to health services for insomnia. So I'm sorry, back that up. (laughs) So you were having nightmares, were they nightmares or just like pleasant, normal dreams? They were stressful dreams because like I would be at this table surrounded by huge amounts of food but I wouldn't be able to eat it. Like I would be just like huge spreads of like colorful, beautiful, flavorful food. And I would like go pick it up from the table and then I would wake up. Oh my God. That's awful. I, my brain was messing with me. Absolutely. And that's, that is so, I have had a similar experience and I've never, I don't even think I've talked about it before, but in times of extreme stress, especially when I was in my eating disorder, I would have dreams that for me, they were, they were nightmares as well, but I would eat a lot of food. I would eat a ton of food. And then these feelings of guilt would come up in the dream. Like, Oh, I, I fucked up. What do I do now? And then I would wake up and I would be so relieved. I have had those. I got them later. Um, like when I was in my early thirties during the years that I thought I was recovered, but I wasn't. And it was the same thing. Like I would have a dream about eating a cupcake and all the guilt. Like I just, I fucked up the whole day. This is awful. I'm going to have to start all over. 
And then I'd wake up like sweating and realize I was dreaming. That means I didn't actually eat a cupcake. Thank God. Yeah. And it's like, you feel that relief, but then obviously the stress is still there because you just spent what felt like, you know, an entire meal time (laughs) so stressed out. And then you realized it was just a figment of your imagination. Yep. Plus then you're awake in the middle of the night thinking about a cupcake. Right. Oh God. Like, how did we get to this point where we're afraid of cupcakes? Like, how did we get to this point? It, it, that keeps me awake at night. Like diet culture, diet culture. So when did you become educated about diet culture and and how it negatively affects us women? I mean, everybody, but but women a lot. So so through my, most of my twenties, I, thought of myself as recovered, but I think what was really going on is I was, I had managed to find a state of being able to still have largely disordered eating, but do it in a way that looked very healthy, like lots of exercise and lots of smoothies. Uh Wait, what year was this? I'm just curious. Um, this was from like 2005 to 2017. Okay. Yeah. I, the smoothie craze was one that I remember also like the juice craze, like obviously people still go for it, but like, I remember being, you know, getting up on a weekend, like a 10 30 AM going outside for a walk and just seeing, um, you know, like a military line of women with their green juice. I, um, I would make in the morning a smoothie and I'd pour it into this enormous, like I had a, I think it was a 64 ounce because the smoothie would fill my whole blender, a green smoothie, of course. And I'd pour it into this like 64 ounce canteen and take it to work. And I would sip at it all day. And that was all you ate. During- and then I would also eat like raw nuts. Wow. Do you think, so did that kind of come into play for you? Like, um, like an orthorexia angle, like a, like a health aspect to it? I think so. Because in, I didn't know about orthorexia at the time, but when I learned about it later, it made a lot of sense because I absolutely told myself for that whole decade, like, I'm not doing this to be thin. I'm doing this for my wellness. Right. And honestly, that's probably, um, that's probably similar to what your mom lived by when you were growing up is like that kind of orthorexic, like food is fuel type of mentality. Yes. The thing that I actually have to give my mom a lot of credit for is I've seen her eating for pleasure so much more in the last few years. Do you think that's just a side effect of getting older and becoming more free with how she eats? Yeah. I think she got to a point in her life where she started just seeking, where she started in a, in a healthy way, seeking pleasure in lots of details and little things and taking pleasure in food is part of that. And I just love seeing it. Oh my God. That's amazing. Good for your mom. Have you ever had a conversation with her or your dad, either of them about the ways that food impacted you? I've had a lot of conversations with my mom about it. Um, because I don't ever want her to feel like she caused any of my problems with food, but she and I are also both like very curious, inquisitive people. Mm -hmm. So we kind of like to go down these rabbit holes of like conversations we had when I was six years old. Uh, And, and (laughs) are there ones that stick out to you that you remember very clearly? 
There is, there's one. And I was a little older. I was probably like 12 or 13 and I was home alone one day and I called her at work to ask her if I could eat ice cream for breakfast. Um, and of course I could have just eaten ice cream for breakfast, but instead I called her and asked for permission. Yeah, and that's she, the wrong way to go. I mean, I, I learned that. Yeah. You got to ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and I don't remember her exact words, but she basically told me eat something else first. Like eat fruit first. And then I cried because of course I was 13 years old. Yeah. And then what did you, do you remember what you ended up doing? I think I, I probably, I think I ate like frozen cashews out of the freezer and then ice cream and no fruit. Sounds delicious. You should have mixed those two together. Yeah. <laughs> That's honestly, that is a better response than most that I have heard on this show regarding like, can I eat this? Can I not eat? Because telling, telling your child, it's so hard when you have a child. I don't know if you have any children. Don't. You don't, I don't have any children, but I, I do have nephews. So I see the way that my sister needs to act to get them just to eat anything. And then on top of that, to get them to eat something good for them, you know, quote unquote, it's really, really difficult. And then if, if they want to have dessert before the meal, you never know because they can't tell you how hungry they are on a scale of right. one to 10. So then you don't know if that's all they're going to eat. And I think that does stress a parent out because they want to nourish their child. Yeah. And kids are notoriously unreliable narrators. Totally. You know, they're, they will totally eat two bites of dinner and say they're full. And then eat dessert five minutes later. Yeah. And then like 20 <laughs> minutes later, be like, can I have some goldfish? And you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I go through all of this with my nephews, but you know what, what, what I've taken away and, um, and my sister, I will say is, is pretty good at this is like, you don't have to sweat it. Like giving, giving them different options. And if they go for the option that you wouldn't go for it's just their palate. It's just that, you know, a five-year-old has a really different palate than an adult has. And you just got to trust. There's like a lot of trust that needs to go into the process that they will eventually yeah. uh, um, uh, acquire a taste for different foods. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't like vegetables until I was 17 or 18. Like there is nothing that anyone could have done before that to make me like vegetables. And then in college, I discovered Thai food. And I was like, oh, wow, these vegetables taste really good. Yeah, you got to season that. Yep. And that opened up this whole world of vegetable eating for me. But I mean, there was nothing, when I was six, there is nothing that anyone could have done to convince me that I liked Brussels sprouts or green beans or peppers. Right, exactly. Yeah, I used to hate hummus, which is insane. I eat hummus every day, but I didn't like it. I guess I didn't like the texture. Or I thought it was this weird beige food. Like I just didn't, it was creepy to me. I didn't like it. So I guess that's, that's like the only even semi advice that I can give to parents not being a parent is like, just trust that your kid's not going to grow up to be a serial killer if they only want to eat right. chicken nuggets, you know? And the other thing is, I know adults who eat nothing but meat and potatoes and bread and are perfectly healthy. And although right. I'm not recommending this as a lifestyle choice, there is living, walking proof that it doesn't mean anything really bad is happening. 
That's very true. That's very true. If we, we become, we've become very hyperbolic about, you know, this is going to cause cancer. Like nobody eats vegetables anymore. It's, it's, there's a lot of just hyperbolic, like almost apocalyptic thinking around this subject. I think there is some wonderful research um, showing that if you look at basically any food, I think they looked at like the 50 most common ingredients in American cookbooks, um, including really normal stuff. And if you looked at the data enough and in enough different ways, you could find evidence that anything we eat causes cancer. Interesting. Wait, where <laughs> did you read this? What book? Um, it was, I will look for it. I actually okay. I had found the original paper at one point because I'm that kind of nerd. <laughs> Definitely send it to me when you have time, if you, if you, you know, are able to find it. Cause I'm interested in that stuff, but just to get back to you, what age do you think you actually fully recovered? Cause you said you were in pseudo recovery in your thirties. So at what point do you yeah. think you actually started to be recovered? My early thirties was the turning point. I had an actual relapse where I was really stressed about stuff that had nothing to do with food. And then I binged and purged and then I cried about it. And I was like, huh, this isn't great. And then I spent a few months obsessing about how to like biohack my gut microbiome for weight loss. And YouTube showed me a video. Um, it was Sandra Ahmad's TED talk, Why Diets Don't Work, in which she talks about mindful eating and she talks about weight not being a good predictor of health and outcomes. And that's what a what, novel idea. Yeah. So that I actually think of that TED talk as like the YouTube video that saved my life because I then like I read her book and that sent me down a huge rabbit hole of mindful eating and intuitive eating. Wow. Shout out to Sandra. Yeah. And YouTube, the YouTube algorithm. Absolutely. I I've said it on this show before. YouTube videos were a huge <laughs> tool that I used in my recovery. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about, you know, professional, um, talks or Ted talks. I'm talking about like, there's a whole community on YouTube of women in eating disorder recovery. And they take you through their day and they talk about their struggles, like real things that they experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And I found it so helpful and it's completely free too. And I tell people all the time, like go on YouTube, find videos that you like. Cause also Another thing is um, eating disorders are very isolating. So I think when you're in that state, you don't know who to turn to. You feel like, okay, I can't, I don't feel safe doing all the things that I used to do. I only really feel safe in here in my bubble. So being able to go on YouTube and watch videos, it feels like you have a friend, even though you don't. <laughs> yes. Um, so then how did you segue that you said that played a huge role in you becoming a mindfulness expert? How did that transition happen? Yeah. So I had been teaching yoga already, um, sort of on the side and at the, I guess it was at the beginning of 2019, it occurred to me that if I could make more money teaching yoga, I could leave my corporate job. Um, so that got me into the whole online business space. And I didn't, I didn't love the idea of trying to teach like a very physical yoga online, but I had a unique approach to mindfulness because I was someone who hated to meditate. So oh, same speaking, <laughs> speaking to my soul. So when I finally found 
ways of meditating and practicing mindfulness that felt good to me. Plus at the time I was still really fired up about like, this is all the freedom that's available to you. If you stop trying to control your body, I had actually started out in the online space, trying to teach mindful eating, but I found that I struggled to sell it because so many people wanted weight loss and I didn't want to sell weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. And it took me a long time to realize that what I was really selling was freedom. I was selling time freedom. I was selling energy. I was selling the ability to do whatever you want to do. And reconnecting with our bodies is an essential part of that, regardless of whether that it includes having a healthier relationship with food, or if it's just connecting with our bodies because we are so stuck in our heads with our spinning thoughts. Yeah. So then how would you incorporate that into the yoga? Like, would you speak to your clients at the same time, like during the yoga practice? Yeah. So the way that I practice and teach yoga, the whole thing is a mindfulness practice. Um, So what kind of yoga is it? um, The closest style is Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy, which is that one. (laughs) I love it because it's the whole practice is really designed to prepare you for meditation. Um, There's there's no flowery language. There's no like hip hop music in the background. Um, and I do, I do love a good power vinyasa class with hip hop music. However, <laughs> um, this particular style of practicing, it's really about starting out just um, with a little bit of vigorous movement so that you can get the energy in the body to match that sort of busy brain state that we're usually in when we start. And then slowing down into really intentional movements, holding poses, for an extended period of time and really feeling into the sensations of the body. So there's very little focus on alignment. Um, We really only address alignment if there's a safety issue. Other than that, it's really about giving simple cues that help people to stay in the present moment, focusing on the body sensations because our brains can't do two things at once. We can't notice the sensations of the body at the same time as we are trash talking ourselves. Like we can do one or the other. Right. So, so do you think this might be a silly question, but I don't know very much about meditation except that I've tried it and it sucks, but, (laughs) but I mean, okay. So this is just a side note, but I do believe in deep breathing as uh, you know, a meditative experience. And I, I, I've mentioned that before too, is, uh, you know, if I'm feeling anxious and I suffer from anxiety, I will definitely sit down and do, you know, some deep breathing for, you know, three to five minutes. And it, in a way that is meditation, but when I think of meditation, you know, often I think of uh, sitting on the floor and not focusing on anything except your breath. And for me, it's like, it's not that disciplined. I'm, I am not that disciplined of a person. So I guess my question is, is, do you believe that yoga and the body movements is a way to access that mental space, like to be able to meditate freely? I love this question. So first of all, you get full meditation points for breathing deeply. I just want to be really clear about that, like full credit. Okay, great. Um, But the other thing (laughs) is, you know, you're right. Meditation does suck. And that's because the way that it's taught 
is really not accessible to most of us who are walking around with human brains. Because if you tell your brain, shut up and don't think about anything, it's like telling a mountain biker, don't hit that tree. You're going to look at the tree and you're going to hit it. Yeah. So one of the best things we can do for ourselves and our brains is give our brains something to focus on. And bonus points if the thing that we're focusing on is a physical sensation. So noticing your breath is meditation. Moving your body and noticing how it feels is meditation. One thing I both do a lot and encourage my clients to do is foam rolling. It feels really good. And I, it's, I love a foam roller. Yeah. And it's, and if you're doing it without, you know, if you're doing it while you're watching TV, you're watching TV. But if you're doing it with no distractions, that's a mindfulness practice right there because you're noticing the sensations of the roller. You're making this coordinated movement to move your body on the roller. And then you're noticing the feedback in the sensations as you move your body and you move the roller. See, I think that's something that a lot of people could get behind because who doesn't like to ease their muscles and be able to relax their muscles. And at the same time, you're getting mental benefits from it. Exactly. It has the exact same benefits as sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed chanting, but it doesn't suck. Nice. Wow. Okay. I, this is opening my eyes a lot. Um, and I'm wondering where did your work or how did your work rather with productivity come into play after that? As I got sort of deeper into having my online business. And I started to look at what were the results my clients were getting. A lot of it came back to overcoming procrastination, overcoming imposter feelings, and actually doing the things that they had set out to do. Um, and then I looked at sort of my career um, in corporate. Um, I was a Six Sigma black belt. I was a corporate trainer. I was in sales and program management. And I realized that I had actually kind of been a productivity ninja all along because I always, I had multiple businesses while I had my corporate job. So everything yeah. just sort of converged on helping women get more done and feel good doing it. And so can you give me an example of, you know, something that somebody might come to you for specifically to do with productivity that is a problem or like a, maybe a common problem that you see? Yes. The, I mean, the problem that I hear the most is simply, I don't have enough time and my to-do list gets longer every single day. I work all day. I work more in the evening. And then somehow I go to bed with a to-do list even longer than I started. Yeah. And then how do you address that? Um, three things is first we figure out where are they essentially leaking energy. Um, so a lot of that is going to be sneaky things like worrying. And this is also where disordered eating behavior shows up if it's present, because that's going to be a lot of worrying and mental gymnastics that's ultimately not productive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And we talked about this up top, but it's crazy how I could feel so overwhelmed at work. And yet my mind, the first thing it will go to is like, well, how much did you eat today? You better. And, and it's, it's not me at all. It is like this <laughs> devil on my shoulder. That's telling me like, okay, well, if you want everything to be in line and you want to fix everything and make everything look pretty, like just keep your eating in line. And it's like, that's not going to help me reach my deadline. That's not going to yeah. help me finish what I need to finish today. 
it's so insane how you make that jump. Exactly. And so, you know, for those of us with the disordered eating history, that's how it shows up. I would remember I would sit at my corporate job and look like I have this whole stack of export compliance stuff I need to go through. I should, I should check my macros and see if they need an adjustment. Yeah. And then for the other ways it'll show up or are things like, I need to record a video, but I'm really not happy with my body. So I'm going to create a whole bunch of other work to avoid recording the video. Mm, Interesting. And then there's a lot of other mental gymnastics we put ourselves through. Um, Like I need to do more research before I can create this thing, even if you're already an expert on the thing. And I'm, my guess is that that's where that's what you're talking about with imposter syndrome. Like I'm not qualified to be doing this work. Yep. So how do you get over that though? So the first step is actually mindfulness because it's recognizing that all of that talk in our heads, it's not real. It's not facts. It's actually just our brains trying to resist change and keep us safe and comfortable and stuck in a very deep rut. And a mindfulness practice helps us to get a break from that. And even if we get a break for just a few minutes through stretching or foam rolling or deep breathing, it helps to loosen the thoughts so that when we become aware of them again, we recognize these aren't who I am. These are clouds moving through the sky, but they aren't who I am. And I can choose how much airtime I want to give them. Clouds moving through the sky is probably a nicer analogy than my devil on the shoulder. analogy. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it more, you know, serene, like just let them, let them pass by you. It's not like a devil that I need to shoot down. (laughs) I mean, you can flick him off your shoulder. Oh, and I do. I'm flicking that devil (laughs) off the shoulder every day. Don't you worry. Um, I could talk to you for, you know, another hour about this stuff, but we have to wrap up. Where can people find out more about your mindfulness techniques and everything that you do? My website, drbrooksmith.com and on Instagram at drbrooksmith. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Yo, yo, yo. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Dr. Brooke Smith. Guys, it's been a real one. If you like this show, write an Apple podcast review. It truly helps people discover the show, which is what we want. And it also boosts my ego, which is always what I want. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lubination. Please slide in my DMs. Let me know what you thought about this week's episode. And you can follow the podcast at RIP Diets and check out my Patreon for more content at patreon.com slash RIP Diets. Peace out, motherfuckers.